What would happen if God sinned? On the one hand, such an event is inconceivable because to be God is to be holy and sinless. So one may as well ask, what would happen if water wasn't wet? Or what would happen if fire wasn't hot? But if we allow our minds to hypothesize for a moment about what would result from such an inconceivable event, the outcome we find would be too terrible to imagine. If God sinned, then God would cease to be God. Then everything that God created and everything that he sustains by the word of his power would instantaneously cease to exist, disintegrating into nothingness. Or perhaps the universe would collapse in on itself like an enormous black hole with all of time and matter screaming into an infinite void. The point is that everything, all of existence, all of reality, rests upon the holiness, the sinlessness of God. Another way of stating it would be to say that all existence depends upon God being God, upon the I am continuing to be. Now I begin this morning with this admittedly abstract question in order to try to get us to feel what is at stake in verses 25 and 26 of Romans chapter 3. Paul's purpose in these verses is to vindicate the righteousness of God in justifying the ungodly. Stated another way, Paul is acting as heaven's defense attorney and his aim is to defend his client against the charge of sin. God, the judge of all the earth, has been charged with injustice. He's been charged with dereliction of his duty to judge and to punish sin with its just recompense. In short, he's been accused of breaking his word and violating his oath. Paul's purpose is to vindicate God's good name by showing that God has acted in mercy to justify the ungodly in such a way that he has maintained his own righteousness and has been utterly true to his own holy character. If Paul fails to prove this, if God is found to be unrighteous, then all existence ceases to exist in all time and all matter and all reality infinitely dissolves into black nihilistic nothingness. The thought of God sinning is unfathomably terrible. What has caused this crisis of character in God? Why has God been charged with unrighteousness such that he needs to be defended, such that he needs to be vindicated in this way? Well, look at verse 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because... In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul is telling us that God killed Jesus, putting him forward as an atoning bloody sacrifice in order to show, in order to demonstrate God's righteousness. Well, why did God need to demonstrate his righteousness? What has God done that might cause his righteousness to be called into question? Well, Paul says in verse 25b that God has passed over the former sins. And at the end of verse 26, that he has justified the ungodly through faith in Jesus. Well, what's wrong with that, we might ask? What's the problem with God showing mercy to sinners? Isn't that a good thing? Well, the problem as I see it is twofold. First, there's the problem of God's justice. You see, to justify the ungodly is unjust. To pass over sins without exacting sin's just recompense is unjust, and yet God's been doing it for centuries. Imagine a judge who routinely fails to uphold the law, who regularly lets thieves and swindlers and murderers and rapists and tax evaders and sexual assaulters and child predators and deadbeat dads and drunk drivers and drug dealers. He lets all of them walk free without requiring of them the just penalty of the law. Would such a judge be righteous? No, he'd be as crooked as the dog's hind leg. He would and he should be recalled and impeached post-haste. Why? What if the judge is just merciful by nature? What if he just loves to show mercy over judgment? What, What if his heart is just irrepressibly moved with compassion as he listens to criminals tearfully make their confession and plead for leniency. What is wrong with a judge being merciful? Isn't mercy a virtue? Not if it is your elected or appointed moral duty to uphold the law. Justice is good and necessary in the maintenance of civilization. What would the victim of theft or the elderly lady who was swindled out of her retirement savings say to such a judge? How does the judge's mercy affect them? What about the victim of rape or the family of one who has been murdered? Would they view such a judge's mercy as a good thing, as a virtue? You see the point? It is the duty of a judge not to show mercy, but to uphold justice. And yet, for centuries, for millennia, God has been passing over sins and not exacting justice. 
That is why his righteousness has been called into question. That's why his righteousness had to be vindicated in the death of Christ. God is the judge of all the earth, and it is his moral duty to uphold the law and justice in the universe. The upholding of justice is integral to the maintenance of of an orderly universe. If God is not just, the universe ceases to exist and it descends into chaos. So there's a problem of God's justice. Secondly, there is the problem of God's integrity. Simply put, God has sworn to punish the guilty. So what would happen if God went back on his word? Genesis 2, 16 And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. And yet, time and time again, throughout history, God has not required the death of sinners but rather he has passed over their sins and he has allowed them to live. God did not kill Adam and Eve when they sinned. God did not destroy Israel when they rebelled. Bailey Hill told me a story which illustrates the problem with this. When Bailey lived in the town of Wasco in California's fertile San Joaquin Valley, he ran a business that cut hay for farmers If you've been around Bailey for any time at all, you've heard about Wasco, California. At one time, Bailey had as many as 40 men working for him. And he said to me, I always told them that when I hired them, that if they messed up once, I wasn't going to make a big deal about it. I would take them aside, I would speak to them privately, and we would never mention it again. But if they made the same mistake twice then I told them that they'd better just go to the office and pick up their paycheck because they were done. Bailey told me that in all the years he ran that business, he only had to fire one person. The man was an alcoholic, and he showed up to work drunk on two occasions. And the second time, Bailey drove him home himself. And he said that the man's wife came out of their front door and begged him not to fire her husband. She said it was the first stable job that he's had in a long time, and Bailey told me that it broke his heart, but he told her, I can't do that. I cannot go back on my word, or else my employees will not respect me. See, Bailey knew that if he went back on his word and showed the man mercy, that mercy may be good for the man in the moment, 
but it would be detrimental to everyone in the long run. The reason why his men worked so hard and with such honesty for him is because they knew that he had integrity, that he was a man of his word. And if he lost that integrity, if he lost that respect, eventually the business would collapse because he would have lost the respect and the trust of his employees. Now, Bailey Hill is a wise man, and he understood what was at stake if he lost his integrity. See, God swore to punish sinners with death as their sins deserved, and yet, in the case of so many, he didn't do it. And this is called into question God's justice. It's called into question God's integrity. It's called into question God's righteousness. I want to illustrate this story or, or this truth with a story that you're all going to be very familiar with from 2 Samuel. You remember the account of, of David and Bathsheba. David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, was taking a, a walk up on the roof of his palace one spring evening when he should have been leading his armies into battle. That's where a king belongs, leading from the front of his people. But David was in a period of spiritual decline. And so he sent his people, his men, out to battle without him. And while he was walking up on his roof from his vantage point, he saw a woman bathing, and she was beautiful, and he wanted her. And since he was the king, he called for her, and he took her, and he slept with her. And when Bathsheba turned up pregnant, David conspired to have her husband, Uriah, brought home from the front lines in an effort to cover up the affair. And when that plan failed, as Uriah proved himself far more righteous than his king, David had Uriah killed. In time, God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin, and Nathan told David that he had despised the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, 9, it's very important. You have despised my word says the Lord. The very next verse he says, you have despised me. That's what God thought of David's sin. David had not concealed his sin from God. God saw it. And God understood it for what it was. David's sin of adultery and deceit and murder was not only a despising of God's word, it was a despising of God himself. You cannot do one without the other. If you despise God's word, you despise the God of the word. Well, David confessed, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And if you've been reading the Old Testament from start to finish and you've come upon that sentence, you ought to say, what? David has despised God's word. David has despised God's glory. David has despised God. And he's broken just about every commandment that God ever gave to man. 
And God is the one who established the irrevocable penalty of death for sin. And yet, God tells David, I've put your sin away. You shall not die. Do you see the problem? The soul that sins shall die. Except you, David. You're not going to die. If God does not take David's life for what he has done then God is found to be a liar. What does Bathsheba's father think of God's mercy? If God does not exact justice from David for David's sin, he would be declaring to David and to everyone who witnessed David's sin that his word is not all that important, That it's no big deal to despise his name. It's no big deal to trample upon his glory. See, passing over sin makes it appear that God's glory is invaluable. It makes it appear that God's glory is cheap. And that would be exceedingly evil. It is evil not to value that which is most valuable. See, punishing sinners who despise God is good because it demonstrates the value of God's glory and it demonstrates the price of despising it. Not punishing sinners who despise God is evil because it cheapens or devalues God's glory by demonstrating that there is no cost to despising God. If God passes over David's sin and does not require death and does not carry out the sentence of divine judgment, then God would be unrighteous. Now do you see the problem? God cannot pass over David's sin or your sin or my sin and not satisfy the just demands of the law without himself becoming unrighteous. And yet, God has done it over and over and over again. He didn't kill Adam. He didn't kill Noah. He didn't kill Abraham. He didn't kill Jacob. He didn't kill Moses. He didn't destroy Israel. He didn't kill David. He hasn't killed you or me. Over and over again, he's passed over sins. To pass over, verse 25, is a word that means the remission. Passing over is a good translation. It does not mean to forgive. This is very important. The word that Paul uses here does not mean that God forgave former sins. There's a word for forgiveness. It's used a lot of times in the New Testament. It's not used here. Rather, this word refers to the suspending of judgment, the suspending of punishment. So when Nathan told David that God had put away his sins, he meant that God had set them aside for a time in order to deal with them later. God had suspended David's judgment. 
But all the while that God was passing over sins and suspending sinners' judgments, his righteousness, his reputation was taking hits. How was God going to solve this problem created by his mercy? How would God vindicate his righteousness? Paul tells us how. By killing his son in the place of sinners and by doing it publicly for all to see. God put Christ forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he passed over former sins, not forgiving them, setting them aside in order to deal with them at a later time. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's three words of great importance in these verses that I want us to look at more closely. The first, when God or when Paul says that God put him forward, the key word there means to put forward openly, to, to hold forth for public scrutiny. That's why the New American Standard, I think, gets this word the best when it translates it, whom God displayed publicly, which probably best captures the sense of the word. When God sacrificed his son, he did so in the sight of all men because there was something that he wanted all men to see, something he wanted to demonstrate. What was it? Brings us to the second word, the word demonstration. It's used both in verse 25. This was to show or demonstrate God's righteousness. And again in verse 26, it was to show or demonstrate his righteousness. Demonstrate means to, to show, to prove. So what was it that God wanted to prove such that he publicly sacrificed his beloved son? Paul says this was to demonstrate or prove God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So God publicly sacrificed his son in the sight of all men in order to vindicate his righteousness. In the past, God passed over sins which made him appear unrighteous. So in the present, he sacrificed his son in order to vindicate or demonstrate his righteousness. Well, how does the death of Jesus demonstrate God's righteousness? That brings us to the third word. It's the word propitiation. In English, to propitiate means to appease or placate someone's anger and so to regain their favor. Now this word, propitiation, it's an important word. If your Bible takes out the word propitiation, get yourself a new Bible. It's an important word. But it's a word that has caused no small amount of embarrassment among liberal theologians over the past two centuries who are uncomfortable with the notion that God has wrath which may need to be appeased through blood. Such an idea, they say, is more fitting for heathen, pagan deities than for Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Now, discomfort with the notion of divine wrath 
I would hasten to add, is not confined to the liberals. I would venture to guess that the great majority of Christians that are raised on a kind of Christianity light, found in most devotional books and proclaimed from most pulpits, the kind of gospel that is more self-affirming than self-abasing, are equally uncomfortable and equally unfamiliar with a God of wrath. Five years ago, for example, the Presbyterian Church USA, not the PCA, the PCUSA, was producing a new hymnal, and they wanted to include the the song, In Christ Alone. However, the committee was uncomfortable with the words of the second verse of that song, which state, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I stand. The committee instead wanted to substitute the line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Because they were far more comfortable with the magnification of God's love than with the satisfaction of God's wrath. So they wrote to the song's composers, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, who very quickly replied that you may not change the words of our song. So the committee instead voted to drop the song from the hymnal altogether. What was the problem with the original lyrics? The problem was that the PCUSA was and is uncomfortable with the notion of God's wrath, and therefore they must find another meaning for Christ's death other than that of propitiation. And before we cast stones at those liberal Presbyterians, I would venture to guess that a great many Baptists would agree. For this reason, many have suggested an alternative translation of the Greek word here, which is hilasterion. And they have tried to come up with a different way to translate it other than propitiation. Some would translate it as mercy seat, meaning the the lid over the top of the Ark of the Covenant on which the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. The idea then would be that by his death, Jesus is now the mercy seat where God and sinners are are reconciled. And that translation has some merit, especially since this is what the Greek word nearly always means in the Greek Old Testament, as well as in its only other New Testament occurrence in Hebrews 9.5. But if you think about it, translating this word as mercy seat doesn't actually solve the problem. Because the only way that God and sinners were reconciled on the Day of Atonement was through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, which propitiated God's wrath against the people's sins. Another alternative translation is expiation, which means to annul guilt and to remove defilement. It's got the idea of cleansing. This would make the object of Christ's death the removal of sins, not the placating of God's wrath. But I want to suggest to you two reasons why we should keep propitiation in our Bibles and why you, okay, rank and file church members, haven't been to seminary, don't deal with big technical theological terms, why you ought to keep this word, retain it, and know it, and love it. Two reasons. The first is simply that this is the meaning of the Greek word. This is what Paul meant. 
And so this is the word Paul used. Leon Morris, in his incredibly influential work from the 1950s, the apostolic preaching of the cross, decisively proved that this word means the removal or satisfaction of wrath. He, he surveyed all of the extra-biblical literature, and this is, this is definitively what it means. But the second reason is the context of Romans. I just want you to think back to Romans 1 and the, what we've been studying over the past four months. Paul began the main body of his letter by, the, by declaring that the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel precisely because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then he spent the next two chapters showing that all men, in all places, at all times, everywhere, are unrighteous and are therefore under this divine wrath. So by the time we get to Romans 3.21, We ought to be keenly aware of the fact that God's wrath is upon us and that what we need more than anything is for that wrath to be averted, satisfied, placated, removed, absorbed. And now in 325, Paul is telling us that this is exactly what God did in giving over his son to the death of the cross. Christ's death, Christ's blood has propitiated, satisfied, absorbed in his own self God's wrath on behalf of everyone who will receive it by faith. So if there is no propitiation in Romans 3.25, then Paul has left all sinners under the wrath of God. So should we be embarrassed by the notion of propitiation? Is it beneath God to suggest that God gets angry at sinners and has to be appeased by the blood of a sacrifice? Is God no different than the pagan deities that must be offered a sacrifice in order to get them to stop being so angry with us and instead do us good? No. Yahweh is nothing like the pagan gods of the heathen peoples. And this propitiation of Christ is nothing like theirs. John Stott did wonderful work in this area because he was living in a day when most theologians in England were claiming that the idea of propitiation is beneath God. It's a pagan term. And Stott said, not so fast said there's three differences between that propitiation and this one. First, he said God's wrath is not capricious. God God is not some ill-tempered deity who gets out of sorts for no particular reason at all and decides to take out his wrath upon humans. Stott said there is nothing unprincipled, unpredictable, or uncontrolled about God's anger. It is roused by evil alone. So God's wrath is a holy wrath, aroused only by evil. Second, Stott said, the propitiation offered to God is given by God. God put Christ forward to be a propitiation by his blood. In the pagan religions, 
If we've offended the gods, we must supply the propitiatory sacrifice in order to appease them. But Stott again says, the Christian answer, by contrast, is that we cannot placate the righteous anger of God. We have no means whatever by which to do so. But God, in his undeserved love, has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this is precisely what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Third reason we shouldn't be embarrassed by the notion of propitiation. Not only did God provide the propitiatory sacrifice. God became the sacrifice. God, in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, died to propitiate His own wrath. Once more, I'll go to Stott. He says, in sum, it would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, Human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son, who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus God gave himself to save us from himself. This is how God solved the problem of his mercy. This is how God vindicated his righteousness. This is how God saved sinners without the universe disintegrating into nothing. God solved the problem of his mercy through the propitiation of his wrath. God's righteousness was called into question each time he passed over sins. God's righteousness was called into question when he didn't kill Adam or didn't kill Noah or didn't kill Abraham or Moses or David or countless others for their sins, instead allowing them to live. More than that, extending to them the blessing of his friendship and his fellowship, even though they had all despised his glory, making it appear that God did not value his own glory and that sin was no great offense and that God was neither willing nor able nor qualified to maintain the justice of the universe. God's mercy in days past made it appear that God was unjust, nay, that God was complicit in sin and evil. This, as we have said, is a situation too dreadful to imagine. But God had a plan. He passed over former sins, putting them away in his divine forbearance, his patience, meaning he was patient with their sins now because he was going to deal with their sins later. And this later time, at this later time, He dealt with those sins fully and completely and publicly in the sight of all. Through the grace of imputation, God took all those sins which had been accumulating and all those sins which ever would accumulate to the record of his people 
and he transferred them. He imputed them to Christ, the eternal Son of God made man. God took the most glorious, most beautiful, most valuable thing in the universe, namely himself, and he slaughtered it in the sight of all on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And he did so in order to demonstrate his righteousness and his justice. In the death of Jesus Christ, God was declaring to all, declaring to us, this is what evil deserves. If you ask the question, why was the death of Jesus so horrendous? It's because our sins are so horrendous. This is what evil deserves. This is the just recompense for despising me, for exchanging my glory, the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like yourselves. This is how I show myself just. This is how I vindicate my righteousness in the sight of all history and all creation. I have not overlooked sin. I have punished it to the fullest extent of my holy wrath. It is righteous for the judge of all the earth to punish evil. And while God was passing over sins instead of punishing them, it appeared that he was unrighteous. But now God has vindicated his righteousness, not by punishing his people, but by punishing his son. Which means that now God can pardon his people and he can do so in perfect righteousness. Or to use Paul's language, he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has found a way to save his people in a way that is perfectly right. A way that treats evil as evil ought to be treated. And who benefits from this righteous saving activity? Look at verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Note this, not everyone benefits from Christ's death. Only the one who has faith in Jesus. You may be assured that God will demonstrate his righteousness because God will not, God cannot sin. The universe is safe. Either God has demonstrated his righteous judgment against your sin in the propitiatory death of his Son, or God will demonstrate his righteousness against your sin in your own wrath-bearing death in everlasting hell. Because that is what our sin deserves. If you will receive, rely upon Christ, you will have the former. 
if you will reject, that is, refuse to rely upon Christ, you will have the latter. I want to close this morning by turning to a verse that is familiar to anyone who's been around church for any length of time at all. It's a verse that is often used in evangelism. It comes from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 John 1, 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I'd be willing to bet that many of you have never actually read that verse closely or else it would have caused you confusion. I'd be willing to bet that you've been reading that verse as if it said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That that would make more sense to us if we appreciate the problem that God's mercy creates, namely that it is actually unrighteous for a righteous God to justify and forgive the ungodly. But John doesn't say God is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins, does he? He says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That doesn't make sense apart from Romans chapter 3. Forgiveness is not justice. Forgiveness is mercy. So how can John say that God is just, that is God is acting in justice, to forgive me of my sins. Were it not that Christ had already died for my sins under the justice of God. And if Christ has already died for my sins, it would now be unjust for God to condemn and punish me for my sins. Therefore, John reasons, if I confess my sins... In light of the death of Jesus, it is now the faithful and just thing to do for God to extend forgiveness. The death of Christ has made God just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, of the one who will confess his sins in faith and in hope and on the basis of Christ's propitiating death. And that's what I offer to you this morning. I offer you 1 John 1.9 explained in light of Romans 3.25. I offer you full forgiveness, infinite mercy on the basis of the death of Jesus which has now made it just for God to justify such as I offer you forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness. All of it. Isn't that astounding? All of it. Which means it's not just former sins God passed over, it's future sins. All of it. 
you today can be totally, thoroughly clean and reconciled to God. Why? Because Jesus has died in order to make it righteous for God to do so. And all you must do is confess your sins and believe on Christ. By faith, embrace the the substitutionary death of Christ as your death. Embrace Jesus as your Savior. His death as your death. His payment as your payment. The one who went to the cross in your place to bear the justice and wrath of God which you deserved. And if you do, God will count your sins as having been judged in righteousness and punished in wrath in the death of Jesus. At that point then, it would be unjust for God to condemn you and just for him to forgive you and cleanse you and save you. So come to Jesus. If you would be clean this morning, come to Jesus. If you would be reconciled to God this morning, come to Jesus. If you would be forgiven of all your sins, all of your iniquity, come to Jesus. Confess your sins to Him. He is your faithful high priest. He alone is authorized to pronounce over you the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Jesus, confessing your sins, and receive Him, rely upon Him, trust Him to save you on the basis of what He did 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem in the sight of all creation. Come to Jesus.